summer of hope. And what we're doing through this series is we are looking at select passages of Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament that communicate to us and for us what the great hope we have in the gospel, stored up for us in the gospel. Now, last week we turned a bit of a corner in our focus. Up until last week, we had been considering some of the things throughout the scripture that communicate reasons for hope, reasons we can have hope in God, reasons we can have this confidence and this assurance. Well, last week we turned a corner, and now that we understand why we can hope, we're looking at what are some results of hope? How should our lives respond to the hope that we have in Christ? How should our lives be different? And so last week we considered, first of all, there should be joy from this hope. There should be joy in our lives, joys, joy in our expressions of, of who God is and what he's done for us. Last week, um, Amy and I were outside working on another DIY project. And as we were out there working, I see out of the corner of my eye a chicken. I don't know where this chicken came from. I don't know whose chicken it was, but all of a sudden, from nowhere, there's looked to me like about an eight to ten week old chicken. I look around for other chickens. There's no friendly chickens with him. I look for some people to be with this chicken. There's no people with this chicken. It's just a lone ranger chicken in our backyard. And of course, whatever project we were working on immediately ceased because I had to play with this chicken. We now had a chicken, right? So I took this chicken and I took it up onto our back porch and Amy went and got some cornbread mix to feed it because we don't keep chicken feet on hand, so we use cornbread mix. And whenever it was starved, by the way, it was eating all of it, just gobbling it up. And then I remembered there's one person that I know who would be really appreciative of this chicken, and that's my animal-loving granddaughter, Nora. So I FaceTimed her. I said, Nora, we got a chicken. And so she's there on the FaceTime call, and she's just talking to this chicken, singing to this chicken, loving this chicken. Well, FaceTiming the chicken was not enough for Nora, so she begged her mom to first put on her princess costume and then come over and play with this chicken. And sure enough, for over an hour... Nora's on our back deck, and she's playing with this chicken. She's hugging the chicken. She's kissing the chicken. She's throwing the chicken. I mean, she's just loving this chicken. Her cousin, Demi, was not so appreciative of the chicken. She didn't like the chicken. (laughs) Well, the next day, I go to pick Nora up from preschool, and this is one of my favorite times of the day is when I go to pick, pick Nora up because as soon as I walk through her classroom and she sees me, she goes, Papa! She runs and jumps in my arms, and it is a great, one of the most wonderful experiences. Well, the next day after the introduction of the chicken, when I walked through that preschool door, guess what she said when she saw me? Chicken! <laughs> she couldn't wait to get to our house to play with the chicken again. Now, this story about Nora and the chicken, I think it's analogous of hope we have in Christ. When we have a settled assurance that we will see Jesus again, it should respond in us exuberant joy. Joy. Amazing joy. Incredible joy. The phrase joyless Christian, it's really an oxymoron. There should be no such thing as a 
joyless Christian. When we have come to know and we have come to understand the great hope we have in salvation, joy is the expected response. Not only is it the expected response, we saw last week that joy is the commanded response. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it, rejoice. Well, this morning, we're going to look at a second result, second consequence, a second fruit of Christian hope, and that is love. Here's another oxymoron. Unloving Christian. There should be no such thing as an unloving Christian. Hope in all the promises of the gospel. Hope in a heavenly home. These things should generate in us radical love for one another. And we're going to see this connection in Colossians chapter 1, our focal passage. Look in your Bibles or in the Bible study outline. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. The Bible says this. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This church in Colossae was marked by love. We see it expressly in verse 4. Look at verse 4 and 5 again. He says, The love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Do you see that? The consequence of hope, the result of hope, the fruit of hope is love for all the saints. And it's this phrase we're going to examine along with other passages from the Scripture that give us a comprehensive look at love, the fruit of hope. Well, three things I want us to see from the passage this morning and other associated passages regarding love, and that is, number one, I want us to see that love, that is the fruit of hope, is displayed publicly. This kind of love that the Bible speaks of here, it is publicly displayed. Paul says there, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have. Paul had heard of their faith. And Paul had heard reports about their love for the saints. Now, this would have been particularly encouraging for the Apostle Paul. And here's why. Listen, the book of Colossians is one of what we know as prison epistles. That means Paul wrote it from where? Prison. He is in Rome. He is locked up in a cell. He is chained to a wall. He is in eye shot of a Roman soldier. And in Colossae, 1,300 miles away... He gets word, not because they flew a jet, because they traveled 1,300 miles to tell of the love of the Colossian church. This would have been incredibly encouraging to the Apostle Paul as he is in prison suffering. That these Christians, a mark of genuine discipleship, 
a mark of their conversion is their love for each other. Here's the deal. You can't keep true love a secret. You can't keep genuine love a secret. Word is going to travel. It's going to get out. And you know what? That's okay. In fact, here's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our affection for one another goes public. You know why? Because it involves people. And guess what? People talk. People talk. And when you love other people, they're going to talk about that otherworldly love. It actually gives evidence to the world that you are, in fact, a follower of Jesus, that you are, in fact, a disciple. Jesus said the very thing in John chapter 13. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, listen, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And the apostle who recorded this, the apostle John, he took that new commandment to heart, so much so that he kept saying it over and over again. He was known as the apostle of love because he kept on saying, church, love each other, love one another, keep on loving. Like if you just look at his first of his three epistles, he repeats it over and over again. Here's a sampling. First John chapter two, he says, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. The next chapter three, verse 10, he says this, by this it is evident who are the children of God. You wanna know who the children of God are? Here's how you know. The children of, and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Later in chapter three, he says, we know that we've passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And finally, in chapter four, he said, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. I think John emphasized this so much because when he heard the new command from Jesus, love one another, he really took it to heart. And Jesus said, by this, by your love for the brothers, all the world's going to know that you are my disciple, that you are my followers. And listen, Jesus did not say, all the world will know you are a disciple if you can vigorously defend every point of doctrine and theology. He didn't say that. Jesus did not say, all the world's going to know if you're a Christian, if you can point out all the evil out there and all the bad stuff going on. He said, they're going to know you're a Christian. They're going to know you follow Jesus by the way you love. This, he says, will be sufficient evidence that you're born of God, that you're a child of God, and that you are in the light and no longer in the darkness. Friends, love is not merely a private, secret activity. Love is not merely an emotion or just this affectionate disposition. I've got love in my heart. Love is a verb. Christian love, by definition, always involves other people And because it involves other people, Christian love is always 
publicly displayed. That's the first thing we see from this text. Since I've heard of your love for the brothers. Here's the second thing I want us to see. Number two, this kind of love is derived from a promise. It is derived from a promise. I want you to notice the connection Paul makes between the love they express and the promise they believe. The connection between the love they express to each other and the promise they believe. It's in verse 4 and verse 5. We looked at it already. The love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. I want you to circle that word because on your outline or in your Bible. This is the cause of their love. It's a cause and effect. The effect, they loved each other. What's the cause? They hoped in heaven. They hoped in heaven. We've already talked about this many times, all the way back to January 10th when we started this whole concept and emphasis on hope. Worldly hope is wishful thinking. Worldly hope is is uncertain. Worldly hope is fluctuating. Not Christian hope. Not biblical hope. Biblical hope is certain. Biblical hope is confident. Biblical hope knows that God will fulfill every promise he has made to us. And here, the hope he identifies is the Colossian Christians' hope laid up in heaven. I'm afraid we don't talk enough about heaven. I'm afraid, unlike our forefathers in the faith, we don't sing enough about heaven. Hope in heaven fosters love. You've probably heard this phrase before. The sentence, if you're too heavenly-minded, you'll be no earthly good. I actually researched this phrase this week, and it's attributed to uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. And then Johnny Cash actually sang this phrase, if you're too heavenly-minded, you'll be no earthly good. And the criticism seems rational on the surface, right? If someone's head is always up in the clouds, if all they're ever thinking about is the sweet by and by and they're just thinking about their future home in heaven where they're not going to notice much less care about all the issues, the real life stuff happening around us. Surely an inordinate focus on the great beyond will bring someone to be oblivious to the needs in the world. This is what this sentence means. In other words, it produces this kind of escapist mentality. Well, let me ask you a question. What all is included in the promise of heaven? What does that promise include? Here's a few things. Promise of heaven is a promise of no more sin and therefore no more suffering and therefore no more broken reflection of the glory of God. And we are a perfect reflection of the glory of God. No more sin means we are completely fulfilled in the reason and the purpose for which God created us. The promise of heaven includes being in the presence of our Savior Jesus. And being in the presence of our Savior Jesus means every disappointment, every doubt is swallowed up. In the presence of Jesus, there's no more sorrow, there's no more grieving, there's no more pain. This is the promise of heaven. The promise of heaven includes inexpressible beauty and unspeakable joy. The promise of heaven is the promise Listen, of the end of all conflict, all hardships, all war, 
Heaven is a place of perfect peace. So is it true that if the Christian is too heavenly minded, if they think on these promises that heaven holds for them, is it true that they can become so heavenly minded that they would be no earthly good, no earthly use? I would say no. And here's why. Let me prove it by asking a question. Have you ever met anybody like this? Have you ever actually met someone that is so overwhelmed with the promise of heaven, that they're so overwhelmed and so focused on all that heaven offers that they don't notice the needs of people around them? I'd say you've never met a person like that. In fact, I would argue this. Look at this next slide. It is not those who are so heavenly-minded they are of no earthly good, but rather those who are so worldly-minded. The problem with the church today is not that we have so many people going into their prayer closets for hours, reading the Scripture, praying, singing worship songs, and they're not influencing the world. The problem with the church today is we are so worldly-minded we spend maybe five minutes in prayer and even less in the world. And that makes us of no effect to the world in which we live. We don't have a problem with being too heavenly-minded. We have a problem in the church of being too worldly-minded. And so we spend all of our time working at a job so we can make some money, so we can buy some stuff, so we can spend our free time enjoying that stuff or repairing that stuff or fixing that stuff. And you need to know I'm preaching to myself this morning. If you feel beat up this morning, just know God's been beating me up all week. The reason we are ineffective in the world is because we're so worldly-minded. And if you don't believe me, that worldly-mindedness is the enemy of, of influence in this world? Listen to the great thinker C.S. Lewis. He put it this way in his book, Mere Christianity. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. And friend, if you don't believe me and you don't believe C.S. Lewis, maybe you'll believe the Apostle Paul two chapters later in chapter 3. He put it like this with an exclamation point. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Friends, it is not heavenly mindedness that prevents the believer from loving others. It is worldly mindedness that prevents the believer from loving others. You see, the only thing that satisfies the heart that's been captured by the hope of heaven is the deeds of heaven. And you know what heaven's going to be full of? Love. And so what should the Christian who hopes in heaven be full of? Love. And this is exactly what Paul is saying in the focal text. This church had publicly displayed love for each other, a love that commended the gospel to the world, a love that proved their discipleship. And this love, it was derived, derived from a promise. This love was displayed publicly, but finally I want us to see this love, it is divinely produced. This is a divinely produced love. Our passage begins this morning with these words, we always thank God. This week in my time of study, 
in this passage, I, I embarked on an interesting exercise. I went through all of the Apostle Paul's 13 letters that are recorded in the Bible, and I looked for every time Paul uses the word thank, thanks, thankful, and thanksgiving. Right at 50 times, Paul has thanksgiving in his heart. But here's what's interesting about this. In all of those instances, he offers thanksgiving to God. Now, that may not sound real interesting, but think about this. Most of those offers of thanksgiving, he was thanking God for the deeds of people. He didn't, not once, say to the church in Rome or the church in Colossae or the church in Thessalonica, thank you, church, for what you've done for me. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you for receiving my word. He never thanked people. That doesn't mean we don't thank people. Don't hear me wrong. But Paul never did in any of his letters. Let me show you a few examples. Romans chapter 1, he says this. First, I thank who? My God, through Jesus Christ for all of you. Why? Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Whose faith is proclaimed? Well, the Roman Christians. But he didn't thank them. He thanked God for their faith being proclaimed in all the world. Look at this next one in 1 Thessalonians 2. And we also thank God constantly for this. What? That when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. They did all these things. They accepted it. They believed it. It's at work in them. But who does he thank for that? God. You look at the next one, 2 Thessalonians 1. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Again, he's thanking God for them. Who gets the credit? God does. And we see the exact same thing in our focal text here in Colossians chapter one. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Again, the point is, they're doing these works of love They are demonstrating their heart for heaven, and his thanksgiving is for God. And that got me to thinking, why don't we talk like that? Christian, church, why don't we talk like that? I probably, more than most of you, have the opportunity to get thank you cards, and I am honored by them and incredibly appreciative of them. I got two just this week. What if we changed our language? What if instead of writing, and and again, this is altogether honorable and right, but what if instead of writing, thank you for the preaching the gospel at my grandma's funeral, we said, I thank God the gospel was preached through you at my grandma's funeral. See the difference? What if instead of saying, thank you for sending that casserole when my family was down sick, we said, I thank God you work magic with chicken and cheese, right? But what if instead of saying, thank you for serving in VBS, we say, I thank God he used you to take the gospel to the children. We change our language. We change our focus. When we do that, what's the difference? Well, I think we recognize what James recognized in James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of life. We're recognizing the ultimate source of all good is God. So Paul says, I thank God that you love each other. I thank God that he is the source of the love that is in you. 
Now, this divinely produced love, again, it's not a human initiative. It's not something a result of, of what we can do, but a result of what God does in us. We can see it in a couple ways from our focal text. First of all, the love of hope is produced in and through us from the word of the gospel. From the word of the gospel. Look again at the second half of verse 5 and following. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing. The way this hope of heaven came to them was through the word of truth, through the gospel. What is this? The gospel is that God in his love and his grace sent forth his one and only eternally living, existing son, the very same Son that, according to verse 17 of this Colossians chapter 1, holds the universe together. This Son of God, Jesus, took on human flesh. He was born of a woman, like all of us were born of women. He was born under the law, like all of us were born under the law. But yet, unlike us, he did not break one iota of the law. And therefore, he had moral perfection. And because of Jesus' moral perfection, He was the only person who could ever, in the history of the human race, take upon himself the punishment for your sin and my sin that has an eternal consequence. And this Jesus was raised from death to life on the third day so that he could provide life to every single one of us who turn from our sin, who turn from our wickedness, and trust in Jesus alone. This is the gospel. This is what we preach every week. This is the word of the gospel that was proclaimed to them. And it is a supernatural word. It is this message, this good news alone that has the power of God to bring salvation. And so it is why we sing it every week. We pray it every week. We preach it every week. Because it's the only message that creates real hope. So you can take, friends, all those self-help sermons that are completely devoid of the gospel. You can take all that pseudo-psychology that emanates from the pulpits and platforms of the church in America. You can throw them in the trash. Only the gospel changes lives and provides hope. The love produced by hope came to them from the word of the gospel. But secondly, the love that's produced by hope was from the work of the Spirit from the work of the Spirit. We see this expressly at the end of verse 7 and following. He writes, Epaphras, that was their, their messenger. Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us, this is how word traveled to 1,300 miles, he's made known to us your love in the Spirit. Circle that phrase, love in the Spirit. Love in the Spirit. This kind of love that Paul's talking about. This transforming love, it only comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. It is spiritually produced. We recognized this last week with this character trait of joy, rejoicing. We said this too is spiritually produced. It's produced by the Holy Spirit. And we looked at Galatians 5.22, where there are nine fruit of the Spirit listed. The fruit of the Spirit is, second one is joy. What's the first one? Love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Just as Christian joy is, is not natural to us. Christian love is not natural to us. It must be supernaturally produced. i got a confession to make. I'm not naturally loving of you people. 
You know what I love? I love money and all the stuff it gives. You know what I love? I love sex. You know what I love? I love birthday cake. Just ask my family. I can eat me some birthday cake. You know what I love? I love driving fast motorcycles over the speed limit. That's what I love. But love that is sacrificial by nature is supernatural. It comes only from the Spirit. This kind of love is divinely produced from the word of the gospel and through the work of the Spirit in your life. Well, as we move towards a conclusion, I want to ask a question that hopefully is going to bring some application of these truths to our lives. How can we be more loving people? How can we love others? What can we do, if anything, to foster this kind of love? Is there any activity we can embark on to develop this kind of love in our lives? I want to show you three points of application from the text. The first one is this. How can we be more loving people? Number one, remind ourselves of the gospel. Consistently and constantly remind ourselves of the good news that we've already rehearsed multiple times this morning. Again, we do it every Sunday, but friends, this needs to be an everyday practice in our lives. How do we do this? This would, of course, involve, at bare minimum, reading the book that presents to us the gospel, the Bible. All 66 books, the Old Testament and the New Testament alike, has one central character, Jesus. All 66 books of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament alike, has one central theme, the God of the universe reconciling sinners like us through the work of his son. This is the theme of the Bible. And so every verse you read, I don't care if it's in the book of Numbers, it points to that theme and it points to Jesus. So read the Bible, look for the gospel, and let those gospel truths energize your soul and cause you to love people. So remind ourselves of the gospel. Contemplate it. Think about Christ's work on our behalf and that same kind of love he's expressed to us, we will express to others. Here's the second thing. Depend on the Spirit. Obviously, because this is only a work of the Spirit, we must depend on the Spirit. You say, well, that's really easy to write down the word Spirit, but how in the world do I do that? It could be as simple as this. Before your feet touch the floor tomorrow morning, you offer a prayer to the Holy Spirit. You say, Holy Spirit, Yesterday, well, I didn't love like I, I hoped I would. I'd done this, and I said that, and I didn't do this, and I didn't say that. Holy Spirit, today, will you empower me to love like you love? Will you empower me with the very heart of the gospel so that I'm a life changer for you? Depend on the Spirit. Pray a prayer like that. Ask Him to empower you, and let me tell you, that's the kind of prayer He likes to answer. We don't just need the truths of the gospel. We need the power of the Spirit to appropriate those truths in our lives. Here's the third application from this passage. How can we love from hope? Set our hearts on heaven. Set our affections. Set our hopes on heaven. I've attempted to prove this fact this morning that the more we look to and the more we long for our heavenly home, the more loving people we will be. And the reason is because longing for heaven, having a strong confidence in the promises of God, having a passionate 
preference over the joys of the joys of heaven over the joys of the earth. This is precisely the power we need to break the bondage of worldly selfishness. In fact, I put it in the form of an equation, a word problem. Look at this next slide. When worldly selfishness goes down, love for others goes up. Friend, let me tell you, I've seen it my whole life in ministry. Marriage issues, there's some major selfishness going on here. But when the selfishness goes down, love goes up. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) I've seen it in relationships between friends and brothers and sisters. When the selfishness goes down, when they don't care who gets the credit, it's amazing, the love goes up. When the worldly selfishness goes down, love for other people goes up. Let me show you a prime example from the Scripture, and with this I'll close. Most of you know Moses' story, right? Here's Moses. He was born as a Hebrew baby in Egypt as the people of Israel were in bondage and captivity in Egypt. And in the divine providence of God, he ends up being raised by Pharaoh's daughter in Pharaoh's house. Incredible. He has all of the opulence, all of the luxury, all of the advantages that such a place affords. So much so that Disney made a movie after him called The Prince of Egypt, right? What did Moses do upon seeing the suffering of his kinsmen? What did Moses do upon seeing the suffering of his people in Egypt? He forsook the wealth of Pharaoh's house and embraced the poverty of his people. This is what he did. He became, out of love, the leader of a stiff-necked, grumbling, ungrateful, complaining people for 40 years marching around the wilderness. How could he do that? How could he relinquish all the wealth of the world's lone superpower and embrace the poverty of his people? Well, Moses is listed in the roll call of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, and that passage gives us insight into the how. Look with me at Hebrews 11, beginning of verse 24. The Bible says this, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. How did he do it? Verse 26, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? For he was looking to the reward. What word could we use to describe that sentence? Looking to the reward. Hope. He had hope. In what? In heaven. And this hope in heaven caused him to make a radical decision. I don't need the treasures of Egypt. I don't need the wealth of Pharaoh. I'm going to embrace the poverty of my kinsmen and love them sacrificially even when they don't appreciate it. How so? He was looking to heaven. He had his hope on eternity. Because when worldly selfishness goes down, love for others goes up. And so I have some questions as we close. Where's this person today in the church? Where is the person whose heart is so passionately longing for heaven that every day they feel like a foreigner in this place? They feel like a stranger, an alien, an exile here.
Where's that person? Where is the person in the church today who has tasted the beauty of the age to come and the glories that it has and by comparison sees the mansions of this life as shacks? Sees the toys that society would push on us, the $60,000 boats and cars and, and trucks and RVs as a pile of scrap metal. Where's that person in the church today? Where's the person in the church today who has such a hope for the coming glory of God that is so captivated by the presence of Jesus that the entertainment of this world, the TV, the movie, the music, the YouTube, the TikTok, the Instagram, it is meaningless to him. Where's that person? Where's the person in the church today that is so confident in the absolute authority of the coming kingdom of Christ, that he will rule over all, that the political wranglings of this world have minuscule importance to him. Where's that person? We get so captivated by the junk of this world, we're missing heaven. We're missing the glories of heaven. And we're missing, friends, the influence we can have in the world because we're hoping for heaven. If you leave with one thing today, leave hoping in the promise of heaven and see how that doesn't change your outlook in the world. Where is the person in the church today? Where are Christians like that today? They're hard to find in America. Real hard to find in America. But oh, that God would raise up a people like that at Lookout Valley Baptist Church that are so enamored with the promises of heaven The diamonds of this world look like pebbles, insignificant BBs compared to the glory of heaven. Heavenly mindedness does does not hinder earthly impact. Heavenly mindedness does not hinder Christian love. Worldly mindedness does. And that leads to my last thought. Releasing our grip on the things of this world will open our hearts to love others. And may we be a people who does that. Let's go to him in prayer as we prepare to respond.